Hello and welcome to the Green Room with Neil Griffiths podcast here on the Handshake Media Network. Thank you for listening. This episode is going to be a little bit different to how we usually do things. It was actually recorded in full at the Overlow Hotel in Sydney last week. It was the Banksia Project's mental health and music panel. And the panelists included Shannon Knoll, Tim Amatic, uh, former radio personality Mel Gregg, Bill Cullen, who is the manager of Paul Kelly and Kate Miller-Heike, Francis Cody, who's the former manager of High Five and Thirsty Merc, and Nick Broadhurst, who's the founding member of Sneaky Sound System. So these panelists basically sat down and spoke about their experiences working in the music industry uh, and dealing with mental health. And an alarming statistic shows that people in the industry suffer mental health issues 10 times more than people outside of it. This is what went down at the panel last week. Check it out. Okay, I think that awkward silence means it's my turn to talk. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Uh, My name is Sam Mack. I'm from Channel 7 Sunrise. I'll be hosting tonight. Um, Can I just start by saying thank you very much for coming along tonight. I know how difficult it is during the week to to get out to these types of things around Sydney. So give yourselves a big round of applause, warm round of applause. Well done (laughs) just for coming along. That's an achievement in itself. Okay, so tonight, welcome to the Banksia Project's Garden Room. Uh, This is an event focusing on mental health in music. The event is proudly supported by ARIA, Support Act, Ovalo, Willamaloo, and Medibank. Round of applause for those supporters. Not possible without them. Thank you, guys. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. The City of Sydney acknowledges the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians of our land, Australia. The City acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the place we now call Sydney. The Banksia Project is a mental health charity which focuses on the early intervention of men's mental health. We're focusing on music, given the alarming statistics, which we're going to get more into as we have our conversations tonight. Uh, People in the music industry suffer 10 times more uh, severe anxiety symptoms than people in general population. That is scary. We're going to talk about that a lot more tonight. I'm sure a lot of people have connections to that, which we're excited to hear about. Uh, This is something which is important for me to do tonight, um, just because the conversations, I'm sure, some of which will be confronting. We're we're covering some very personal topics here, so it goes without saying, we appreciate, you know, uh, you guys handling this in a respectful way and listening to people, giving their moment. But another thing that I need to mention is that um, something we call an audience trigger warning. Uh, It's important to note that some of tonight's conversations may be triggering, they may be challenging. Uh, If anyone is affected by the conversations, you can contact uh, one of the members of the Banksia Project's team. They'll be here tonight. Alana's over there, but there's a whole team here. We'll introduce you to those guys. Uh, There's services such as Beyond Blue, Support Act, or a local GP. Um, It's very important that we get that message out there because these conversations can have an effect on people. We have a videographer and a photographer on site today, so if anyone has an issue with uh, potentially being featured in that, please let one of the team know as well, but they'll be roaming around. You've probably already seen them. Uh, A couple of quick housekeeping bits and pieces. The bathrooms are outside to the right. Uh, The fire exit outside the balcony doors, turn right and cross the road. Uh, Drinks and food will continue in a short break. We'll have a QA and a later on, so if there's something that uh, one of our guests says that you're interested to explore a little further, please keep that in mind or save a note in your phone because later on we will do some Q&As. But uh, once again, a round of applause. Let's start for all of our guests. Here we go. I think it's important that I do a proper introduction for our guests because we have quite the lineup tonight. This is very exciting. Some of them I've met and worked with before. Some I'm meeting for the first time, but I admire their work. So this is going to be such a diverse, interesting conversation. So we fell in love with this man through Australian Idol. Since then, he's had number one hits. He's had five top ten albums. He's even toured with Brian Adams. Uh, only the top tier artists can be shortened to a one-word name. 
Prince, Beyonce, Madonna. But in Australia, we say, Nolsey! Yes! <laughs> yes! Our next guest is a dancer, a TV host, an ARIA-nominated recording artist. He's featured in hit musicals. I believe that makes him a quadruple threat. Please welcome the annoyingly talented Tim Amatic. Next up, a woman who has hosted the biggest nighttime radio show in the country. She's a TV host, she's a writer, she's a passionate campaigner on issues such as endometriosis. Uh, but her career highlight, she once hosted a nighttime radio show with me on Triple M Adelaide. <laughs> it's true. And she still doesn't know all the words to Kaysan, which is concerning. Please welcome Mel Gregg, everybody. Our next guest is an artist manager from One Louder Management, managing homegrown superstars such as Paul Kelly, Sarah Blasco, Kate Miller-Heidke. Please welcome the man I'll now be hitting up for Paul Kelly tickets. It's the great Bill Cullen. Next up, he's managed children's entertainment juggernaut, High Five, general manager for Havas Sports and Entertainment. He's directed the Bondi Film Festival for 13 years. I met him when he was managing Thirsty Merc. He's very excited at the moment because it's that time of the year when In the Summertime gets played on repeat on radio, and that's how he got his eighth beach house. Please welcome Francis Cody. Next up, he's a film producer. He plays the saxophone in Flight Facilities. Love that. Uh, he is a visual artist, much like Tim Amatic. He's annoyingly talented. He's a founding member of Sneaky Sound System. It's Nick Broadhurst. I think that's my work done. Um, I put nine hours into those intros. I was hoping for a bit more, but uh, <laughs> we can work on that. Um, guys, we are here to talk about a very serious topic, and... We're going to get around the room on most of the topics. I've got five or six areas that I'm particularly interested in talking about. I want to get into it straight away. Um, like I mentioned at the top, um, mental health impacts people in the music industry ten times more than people as part of the general population, which is very concerning. Uh, on a broader sense, one in three Australians will face uh, mental illness in their lifetime. So if it's not you, then it's someone in your family, it's someone you work with, it's, it's a friend. So that's why uh, events like this are so important for us to get chatting, to learn, uh, to learn how to better have those conversations and to improve people's way of life. So let's start with um, the music industry, which is why we're here tonight. So we've mentioned that 10 times more likely to suffer anxiety or mental health concerns uh, than the general population. Let's start with you, Shannon. Why do you think that is? Why is it, what is it about this industry that makes it so prevalent? Uh, mate, I mean, I, I think um, the biggest thing probably is, is you're, such on, you're on such a grand scale. You know, um, everybody, or well, the majority of people would know people at, at some level in the music industry. So you're very, so your, your wins and obviously your failures are so uh, widely spread if you know what I mean. So I think that's probably the biggest thing at the moment. And, you know, there's probably only 5% of, uh, of people who are actually in the music scene that actually make it to, to the level that everyone's hoping to when they start out. So, um, you know, it's one in a million chance to make it to the top. And then on top of that, it's not just uh, you know, like you have the Australian cricket team, they're, they're chosen by a, a, a panel of selectors. I think the music industry is very much a popularity contest as well. You've got to be popular with the public. You can have the greatest song in the world, but if, if you're a bit of a ass, <laughs> you, uh, you, you, it goes against everything, you know, and then public opinion matters so much. So uh, I think that people celebrate the highs, but uh, the lows are the parts that we're talking about tonight and the, that um, people have to suffer in silence a lot. Tim, what is it about the industry that you think makes it so prevalent? 
Um, I think it's the fact that as, as an artist, no matter what happens, good or bad, your face is kind of at the front of it. So if a project that you're on, because I think it, for people who don't know in the music industry, to, to get songs out there to the final product, to the public, there are so many moving parts and so many teams and members of teams that are involved. And it really could take one kind of chink in the chain to kind of make it all go down. But guess whose face is still on the cover? You know, having to bear it. And, and so I think being at the front of every campaign, it just weighs heavy on you. And I think as an artist, there's an inner child that we kind of create from that, that makes us want to do this. And that fully grown hopefully comes to a place where we have a song or something we can give out. And so when that comes out and, and it's met with either disappointment or it just doesn't work... That's really tough to tell your inner child, like, hey, man, you know, that thing that you thought was so special, not everyone thinks that way. Um, so, were you told yeah. that as a child when you were starting out, when you were yep. finding your talents and, and where you were going to progress with things? Did you have examples of that? I did. I, um, look, I was, I was lucky enough to, I was in a family that, that taught me from a young age to always have self-confidence. Um, and... Being a musician and an artist, you're unique by nature. And on top of that, for me, I grew up as one of the only black kids around at all. So I had to learn from the jump that, you know, it's okay that you have a vision, that you have to kind of back by yourself and and hold on to that um, no matter what happens. But, it's yeah, it gets tough. It's really tough. Mel, you're coming at it from a, a different angle in terms of, uh, I guess, closer to the media side of the music industry, which is still a huge part of it, um, hosting radio shows, interviewing these artists. From your experience, um, and you can tie it into the radio industry, why, why is it so prevalent in, in these industries? The thing is, when you work in radio, and even as a creative artist, you are being yourself. So you are completely putting your personality, your stories, your loved ones, your life on the line. So when you start to get that critique from people or when people go, oh, that was a shit story, and it's like, well, actually, that, I loved that story. That's really special to me. It's a personal attack over and over again. So even from your bosses, from the public, it's an attack on who you are because to do our jobs, we have to be us. We have to be real. Bill, you'd see the best and the worst of artists, the good days and the bad days. Um, why is the music industry um, troubled by, by this, this mental health concern and, and these anxieties? I think it's... The music industry is, is an incredibly ch um, challenging business. I think a lot of people look at... see glamour in it, and um, there is very little glamour at all. I think but that ringtone, though, what's it? The best ringtone <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. Does it go full monkey mode after a moment? <laughs> that was actually a sneak peek of Nick's new single, which you're going to hear at the end. It was supposed to be at the end, but um, thank you for the sneak peek. Back to you, Bill. I think as Tim and Shannon, Shannon both talked about the f that there's often failure and how hard that can be to deal with. I think on the other side that success in itself can be incredibly hard to deal with, that everybody wants a piece of you. A lot of artists are quite introverted, yet they're expected to have their face on all the time. Um, there's very little sleep. There's alcohol pushed at you. So I, I yeah, believe the successes could actually be as damaging as the, as the failures, and there's not much in, in, in the middle there. 
Well, that's an interesting area, Francis. I'd love to get your thoughts. Um, I met you when you were managing Thirsty Merck, um, hugely successful Australian act. I know Ray Thistlethwaite quite well personally, legendary guy, very, very intelligent, complex guy. And I've had conversations with him about these very topics. Um, how, how did you find that? Let's use Thirsty Merck as an example. Yeah, I think there's an elephant in the room is that there's a certain type of personality that enables you to get on stage. So, and that can be a super high personality, it can also be an incredibly low personality in terms of your approach to life. So, I won't talk particularly about Ray, he's still a friend, um, but he's, well, I said he's just right into it. <laughs> I think to be extroverted to that level, it's unlike anything you've ever seen. It, it literally is an abnormal situation. You are on stage in front of 5,000 people, you're completely extroverted. To get to that state of mind, is slightly abnormal. Would you, yeah, yeah, would yeah. you agree? Yeah. And then weird. off that, I mean, I've had situations with other artists where we've had entire promotion days with 10,000 people waiting for a performance and the person couldn't get out of bed. So there's these two extremes, and present company may be excluded, I don't know, mm. but I think that is the nature of what propels and creates the, the art scene more broadly. You see, it in, you see it in film, you see it in TV, particularly with talent. So in the music industry, I think you've got these two highs and lows of those personality traits, which sets the tone often. That's a really interesting example you've given, um, if we could just stay with you for a second, Francis, the, the 10,000 people waiting a public appearance. There's a lot of you know, management, planning, sponsors involved in something like that. The artist isn't feeling it, doesn't want to be there. How do you manage that? What, what can you do in that situation? Ca crawl into a small box <laughs> and hide. Uh, it's actually happened... Bizarrely, it's happened twice to me. I'm like, really? The same radio station? Uh, how do you... Well, first and foremost, you check if it's a true mental, mental issue. In one case, it was. The other one was complete and utter intoxication. Uh, and it was, for, it was a really important moment in my career. And it was devastating. You know, on the other hand, there was a moment where he, the person was mentally in a very dark space. Yeah. So we had to negotiate with the radio station at length. Uh, it was 5.30 in the morning. We had, you know, those, you know, those, six, you know, those 5 a.m. calls for, for TV. Uh, and we had to negotiate it. And they were very... They were good about it. The other case, they weren't so good about it. Yeah. And it cost us about 25,000 bucks. Wow. So, uh, yeah, those... <laughs> I've been in those situations. But I think it's changed. I was managing Thirsty Merck at the, at the peak 10 years ago, 8 years ago, give or take. Um, you're probably still hearing in the summertime. Uh, but back then, this wasn't really happening, mm. was it, Nozzy? It wasn't really. No, no, definitely not spoke about. It for sure. No. So I think this is a far more open conversation. So I think networks, radio stations, etc., are far more open to that. Have problem. you had those days, Nozzy, where there is a big crowd or a big show, and, and that for some reason, whether it's mental health or, or other, you you just can't do it? Oh, mate! A lot of the time, the hardest part that I've found with it is is every show that you do, people come along and they want, they judge you on that one night that they've seen you. That might be your fifth show in a row and you are absolutely, you've got nothing left, you know what I mean? So you wear that so personally, you know what I mean? So you do whatever you have to do to get up and give them the show that you think that they deserve by buying each ticket each and every night. So, you know, it's because you're carrying the weight of the whole show, it's not, and like early in my career, the first tour I booked was, it was 15 shows in 10 days. Because the first original show sold out in half an hour, so they decided to put matinees on. Mm. So there were, that was driving from Cairns down to Brisbane with a day off. So I literally just went, how the hell am I going to 
make this work, you know. So halfway through, I sort of lost my voice and thank God I had that one day off to, to t- somewhat recover, you know. But, but you just, uh, sometimes you just don't feel it and, you, and, you, and that's understandable because you're tired and, and it's hard to be on that high and be that person all the time when, you, when, you, when you're just weary and, and, uh, and drained, you know. Nick, what about you on the end, mate? We're talking, obviously, about the, the anxiety, the mental health issues in the music industry. Um, what have you seen? I can definitely relate to limping my way through to the end of a tour and hoping my voice holds up. Like, there's an element of stress as a singer that is always with you, you know? It's really hard to escape that. Because if you've got no voice, what do you do, you know? I've, so that's been a struggle for me, personally. But in terms of mental health... I remember there's almost two stages to a successful career. There's the part before, this was my experience, where we worked incredibly hard for a long time, you know, probably six or seven years, to build what became Sneaky Sound System. Looks like an overnight success, but we worked our asses off, right? And back then there was cigarettes in nightclubs and, you know, we'd play till six in the morning sometimes. Um, drugs were everywhere, alcohol everywhere. And my nickname actually was Mr. Sam Pellegrino because I just didn't touch anything. So people <laughs> knew, you know, don't offer me anything. I didn't even drink a beer. But I got to that place because I just knew that if I didn't take care of this physical temple that my mental health was going to, to suffer. And for me personally, the, my experiences with mental health have come from not taking care of this. And I think at its most fundamental levels, like mental health is very complex for everyone. It's very hard to do blanket statements, but I think one thing that you can almost blanket with mental health is there are some basics that you can do that can really move the needle on your mental health and taking care of your physical body would be number one for me personally. Well, that's a great uh, segue to what we should talk about next, which is on a daily basis, on a daily level, how do you keep yourself mentally healthy? And on a bigger picture level, how do you keep yourself mentally healthy? Yeah, uh, the big thing with me, um, I've always played sport, so uh, I love training, going to the gym and training, because it, it's funny, because you can work so hard on something, um, and it's like creating or, 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 or inventing a product, and you give it to the distributors, and then they just don't move it out of the warehouse. So that's so IE, you know, you take it to a regular uh, radio station, they don't play it. Also, you've, you've worked so hard on this passion project that is, it is, comes from your soul and comes from your, your very being, and then all of a sudden, there's a breakdown, uh, like Tim said, you know, that, that one sort of chink in the armour sort of thing, and, and people never... I remember getting a coffee one day, and, and a young lady goes, oh, I'm a big fan, when are you putting that new song? I went, oh, I did three months ago, but you probably... <laughs> you wouldn't know that, because it's, it's not been played on radio. But, but I've, I've found, for me, uh, as, a, as a maintenance thing, the gym's so great, because you put in the hard work, and you get results. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you can actually... There's something tangible about the effort that you're putting in. So it, it sort of offsets the other end, of the, which is the career, the business side of things, where you can work so hard and believe in something so passionately and just all of a sudden, like Tim said, you're the only one that likes it. Or, or you know, it doesn't, it doesn't translate like you hoped it would or you, th- or you actually thought it would. A lot of these times, you, you don't even think of that in the back of your mind. That, you know, you just think, this is great, this is an absolute cracker. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's absolutely demoralising to all of a sudden find out that nobody, nobody thinks the same as you yeah. do a little bit, you know, because... Obviously, lyrically or, or melodically, the song you've written is very close to your soul, you know, and it's your story or it's your song, you know, so people just don't get it or they don't get it the way you get it, you know what I mean, which is very hard. But, yeah, so the gym for me is, is one, was one. I get to get in there and switch off. I don't 
gather to socialise whatsoever. I just put my tunes on, listen to somebody else's music for a little while, and, and uh, you listen and, to Tim Maddock, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what, what are your top ten Tim Maddock songs? Uh, yeah, all of them. All of them. <laughs> Tim, what about you? Um, obviously, you're at the gym listening to Nolsey. Um, <laughs> you what... gotta live. <laughs> what, what about you um, on a daily <laughs> on a daily Love level, it. but also on a bigger picture level to stay mentally healthy? Um, I'm definitely with Nolsey um, on this one, and I find that the, the working out is an anchor for me. I think the music industry, the best way I could put it, is it's it's a it's a Ferris wheel that just doesn't stop. It's a Ferris wheel that doesn't make sense. And I think for your own sense of well-being, you need anchors in your life that are staples that keep you, that no matter what, you know that's going to kind of happen. Because everything else is more or less out of your control. You know what I mean? Just, just going on what um, we were talking about before. It's like, and even in the, having something that's successful, it's like, okay, that worked. So, do people want that thing? But I've evolved now. I want to give this thing. I mean, if I go, that, that, if that, what the, it just keeps moving. So I think for me, um, working out is very important. Um, I've, I'm into a lot of audiobooks as well to listen to, like audiobooks when I work out to kind of just keep my mind healthy and to learn other things outside of music. And sometimes I have to stop listening to music altogether. I don't know, but I analyze every track, especially if it's amazing. I'm like. How did they do that? I'm not getting any reps in. What am I doing? So, so um, yeah. He's so clearly getting reps in. <laughs> um. I am. I am. Um, so, so definitely that on the, the daily type of thing. But in terms of long term, I, I think it's about being really rock solid with your goals, but very fluid with the strategy of getting there. I, I started to realize that. You know, anything can happen daily in the in the industry, and you have a goal and you set it, which is amazing, is important, like it, like an anchor. But you really have to be fluid on how you achieve it. And I think a lot of that is is it just being able to love yourself through things and self empathy, which honestly, uh, I've started to learn in the last eighteen months of my career of just really? being like, yeah, it's it's okay that things aren't happening the way you want them to, or people don't see you the way you want them because you can't really control how people take you. And so self-empathy has been a big thing that has kind of helped me in the last 18 months. That's awesome. That's a really good pointer. I know we have some people in the room who are starting out in the music industry who are learning a lot already. And we're talking quite generally, which is a good starting point. But um, I want to get quite specific. And obviously, if you're uncomfortable with the questioning, that's cool. Um, But I want to know... Let's, I'm also mindful of time, how much time we have here tonight. We're talking a lot about, there's a theme of highest of highs, lowest of lows. That's very much a theme here, and that ties in perfectly to mental health. Um, can we talk about you guys? Um, just, I want to go pretty quickly with this, and then we'll explore a couple of them. But highest of high and lowest of low. Can, can you answer that, Nolsey? Yeah, well, I've had probably my fair share of both, really. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to go to the yeah. highlights reel now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, especially, you know, especially my journey, like, um, uh, it, was, it was overnight type thing, you know. I've been going on a TV show and all of a sudden you've got number ones. I think that was the biggest, hardest thing for me, but I'd, I'd been in a cover band or tour bands for seven years before that, but the way the show portrayed uh, the people in the seasons was, you know, you sing, come and sing in the shower and then you can 
be a, a, you know, a rock star or whatever, you know, which couldn't have been further from the truth because the top 12 in my year, the first year of Idol, had all been in bands and touring for long over a decade. So, you know, that there was a first sort of falsity that, that came about. So that, is that a low for you? The, no, that, no, no, no. I mean, that, that part, I, the, accept, the exception into the... Uh, uh, into the industry was a hard part. I, I didn't think there'd be... You know, my, my philosophy is hate the game, don't hate the player type thing, you know what I mean? So, but I copped a lot of um, negativity from within the industry itself because people didn't think I deserved it because they thought, you know, I'd never seen hardly before, you know? What was the lowest of that? We're just trying to get to some mm. examples, like how low oh, are we right. talking? Well, I mean, on top of that, I think the lowest ones were the, were the negative press, you know, that I've received a few times. Um, I think the hardest part with them is, is you know, you're, I'm... It's like Tim said. It's all. It's my face and my face. Not. A, I'm not a band that's played up on an aeroplane or anything like that. So, the hardest thing to deal with with that was probably um, the misrepresentation of a lot of it. You know, just to just to get public um, opinion or, or or to shock value. You know, the the details that were instrumental in in the story were left out for the benefit of the story. If you know what I mean. To to blow it out of proportion as much as they possibly could. So. That's the hardest part. That's when the phone stops ringing and that's when people, um, you know, who have been so close to you the whole time all of a sudden aren't there in the end. That's when you feel at your lowest or, you, or at the very most alone, you know. Highest? Highest of highs? Oh, you know, I, I th- there's been great things. And it, there's another part too. It's hard to, to um, continually be, have the negatives brought up when, when there's so many... Positives like uh, I was doing an interview the other day for the carols in Adelaide that I'm doing this weekend, and the journalist said, "Oh, you know, so when you think of Adelaide, you know, obviously you've had a bit of controversy over here. You know, what's your what's your memories of Adelaide?" And I went, "Well, I sang at Clipsal 500 in front of 50,000 yeah. people. It's probably the first one that springs to mind. And then the Idol final sold out 13,000 people. Did that here too, and I toured here with Brian Adams and live. So you know, it's frustrating that you're. I know what you're thinking about, yeah. wanker." <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, did, did you actually say wanker? No, I didn't no, say okay. that. No, Just no, checking because no. I would have found that but audio. Then, but then I said, and, and, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm hoping, <laughs> hoping to, um, to add you know, a great experience uh, of playing at the carols to, to the long list of great experiences that I've had in Adelaide. So when, you think, when I think about Adelaide and what springs to mind are all them things before yeah. anything that, uh, that you'll want to dwell on. You know? Absolutely. Um, Nick, highest of high, lowest of low. Yeah, for me... Music has been my joy. It's never really, it's never felt like peaky and, and trophy. It's always felt just like a source of joy for me. And I think um, the, the highs and lows have come outside of that for, for various reasons. Um, I would say the highs are little things. The highs for me are, you know, tomorrow having three weeks with my son on holiday. That's a high for me, yeah. like, you know. But the low, you know, I had so, lived, sorry, just on yep. that, is that something that you identified early in your music career that you, you need to find those outside areas or, you know, family, yep. friends, those... Did you know that early or did it take time to discover that that was important? Um, it, <laughs> uh, it took me making a lot of mistakes to figure it out and, you know, to be playing cricket with a three-year-old son and not fully present or, yeah. you know, always yeah. my mind elsewhere and then thinking, wow, that, that can't be my legacy as a father, you know, so wanting to make those changes, so... But, you know, outside of that, I lived a pretty good existence. You know, I grew up with a great family and, you know, I had a good life. But I never really had experienced depression before. And for me, it actually hit me uh, 2017, January 1st. Like, I know the exact day. It literally just snapped on me one morning when I woke up. Um, 
there wasn't a lot leading up to it. It just kind of hit me and it was very hard to explain. And it went for about 12 months. And I must say that my story is a good one because I got to experience that full spectrum of human you know, emotion, but I didn't stay in it for, for too long, thank God. When you say that it hit you on that day and you clearly remember the exact date and, and all of that sort of thing, um, can you try to describe what you mean by it hit you? Because I'm sure yeah. everyone in this room has woken up and feel, I don't feel like going to work today or I feel shit today. Like, that's a normal human feeling to have that. But what was it that was different about that day that made you go, no, I actually have to do something here? I wouldn't have connected it to the word depression for like six months because that had never been my reality. For me, I just woke up with a sense of hopelessness. And I think hopelessness is the most insidious thing. There was no particular reason for me to be hopeless. It just kind of happened. It was, it was quite bizarre. And I think I can see some triggers that may have led to that. One of those things was I had gone off and produced a film and done other things and I left my music to the side, the thing that brings me the most joy. So, you know, I did identify early on that, that I had to stay balanced. I had to spend time in Mother Nature, I had to meditate every day, I had to eat well, sleep well. And these are all things that don't go hand in hand with a musical career. You know, they get pushed to the side very easily. That's cool. That's awesome that you recognise that. Um, Mel, highest of high, lowest of low. Tough question. Um, how would you look at something like that in terms of your industry and your mental health? Well, I literally went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. I'd worked 15 years in the radio industry to get my dream job which was the Hot 30 Countdown, where I got to interview people like Tim Matic and Nolsey and One Direction. Um, I was living in a penthouse going to all these parties. It was everything I thought it would be that I'd worked my ass off to get. And, and then one day I went to work and uh, it was when um, the Duchess of Cambridge was in hospital for morning sickness and someone on the team suggested we do a prank call. Um, I don't know if everyone in this room is aware of, of what happened. We did a prank call... It was approved through um, the process, which was out of my control. Um, and the end result was a nurse taking her own life. And I don't know if anyone has ever felt responsibility for that before, but it was instant major depression. That guilt was, you know, I lift people, I help people, I don't destroy them. So I went from this normal, happy, healthy girl, had her dream job, had everything going for her, and I literally, within the space of a few days, hit rock bottom to the point where two months into the, to the torture of not what people were saying to me, which was go kill yourself every day, the guilt, the guilt you feel for being involved in something like that, I didn't know if life was an option for me. So to go from being happy, healthy, to know you can have a major illness that puts you on the brink of suicide is a very scary thought and it can happen to anyone and it can be triggered or it can be something where one day you wake up and you go, what the fuck is wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? And it's quite scary when you don't have control and you don't know why you feel that way. For me, I knew why because it was the guilt. But it takes a long time to go from that high to the low to try and rebuild yourself back up. And I'm certainly not back up at the high, but... You know, I chose life that day when I sat there and go, is suicide an answer for me? And it's not. And it's not for everybody. And life is shit. Life is hard, but it's precious. And when you get through that bad day, the next day, it's a new day. Just grasp it. Just take it and just keep trying. And that's what I've done. And six years later, I'm still here. Round of applause for Mel for sharing that. Um, that's incredible. I mean, having known you personally... Um, 
I'm sure a lot of you will be aware it was the biggest story in the country and internationally it was dominating every news service and not for a couple of days, for weeks and then eventually months. Um, and everyone was worried about you. I was worried about you. Um, we were all checking in. There's only so much checking in you can do. Um, when you say you chose life, what were the things that helped you choose life? Like just if someone does find themselves in an awful situation like that, what helped you get through that to, to be here today? I think, and also someone drank my champagne. Can I please have another one? <laughs> Excuse me. Yes, please. Yes, so the please. answer is champagne. No, yes. oh, <laughs> I think champagne it's a message man, here's champagne to us. Thank you. That's why I was drinking, everybody. When you said, how do you deal with your mental health? There you go. Shape knickers, no gym and champagne. Um, look, the thing is, and I'll, I'll take you to that place. It's a dark place and I don't want anyone to, you know, do speak to someone if you are feeling unwell. But I think you need to get to the absolute bottom where you're sitting there and I remember thinking, okay, if I was to commit suicide, how would I do it? And I was looking and thinking and going, I can't see... Oh, in my hand, please. Thank you. Can't bend down. I've got my shape knickers. Can't bend down. Thank you. Um, you think and analyse, and I was trying to visualise it and I couldn't and because it's not the answer. It's not the answer for anyone. I know how hard it is. Like, I was told every day, and it wasn't... Like, it felt like months for the media, but it was two years, Sam, two years of being the front page of the paper of people saying, go kill yourself, you've killed someone. I'm going to kill your mum, I'm going to kill your sister. You know, you think of the worst things that you can possibly be told in your life to get to that point, but you go, okay... What, what, why would you die? What's the, what, what, just make it easy for, for yourself, for everybody else? There is so much more to live for. Yes, this is happening. Yes, this is awful. I have family. I have friends. I have a life. And that's when you need to go, okay, what can I do to get to the next step? One step at a time. I loved inspirational quotes, just chatting to your friends, finding a way that the next day is better than the last. If you can just do that, you will keep going. And that's what I did. It's fantastic. Um, Bill, Francis, for your artists that you've managed over the years, um, if, if, they're, if they've experienced a real low point, whether it's personal or professional, what is your role in that and, and how, do you, how do you help them with those situations? And how do, how do you identify them? Give us some insight to a management with an artist who's experiencing these types of things. I'm going to talk more about myself, if that's okay. Of course. Which I, which I don't get to do very yeah. often, because I'm normally talking about artists. Um, I have bipolar disorder, so my life has been highs and lows. Um, so feedback feedback. Feedback. Closer, closer oh, to your mouth. it was close. So, yeah, and it's something I didn't get diagnosed until maybe 10 years ago, and I think that's something that has changed and needs to change more, that it took me a long time to get proper access to the, you know, the mental health system, basically. Since I've been you know, on medication, things uh, have a lot better. Um, I first got treated for depression after my brother died of um, suicide, and that was a, you know, just a weird time of where the head can go with suicide. I could see the absolute devastation that that caused me and my family, yet in my depression, I wanted to do the same thing. And it was only thinking about, you know, my, my young girls that stopped me from, from doing that. Um, but yeah, it's just really scary 
where your head can take you. Absolutely. Um, so diagnosed with bipolar, is that correct? Yeah. And, and, on, and on the highs and lows, it can be really weird that things that I feel should give me the most joy in life, like being at a you know, massive sold-out show, I'm standing there going, why yeah. is this not doing anything for me at all? Um, so, yeah. So just to explore that a bit further, mm. um, the medication for bipolar, talk me through, is, is that a process to find the right dosage, et cetera, that works for you? What was your experience with that? Yeah, because at first, after my brother died, I was diagnosed with depression, so I was on antidepressants, which actually made the bipolar worse in a lot of ways, that as I, as I went down, you know, I was put on medication, they'd up it and up it and up it, which sent me into hypermania, and then I'd crash, and it was, you know, repeat. And then when I was diagnosed properly, yeah, it took kind of four or five years to get the right mix of, you know, i take three different medications, but to get that right mix it took a long long time and the weird thing with these kind of medications is that no, nothing is proven to be right for everybody everything reacts differently side effects are different it's um a real trial and error process mm. still round of applause for bill for sharing that um, thank you very much mate thank you for sharing um francis i know that you you've had a very challenging year um are you happy to share some of what, yeah. what's happened this yeah, year? Yeah, sure. I think before, as managers, we struggle to talk about ourselves. <laughs> so I'll put that second. You don't struggle to take 30%, though. <laughs> Ooh. Hang on a sec. Bill and I have only ever taken 20. <laughs> the agent takes 10, doing nothing. Uh, I'll kind of split the, the, the answer. Um, just on the artist front, I, I spent a long time, like 15 years in management, talking to artists about, mate, I think you need help. Literally, I was the bloke going, I think you need help. And what kicked in, it wasn't so much ego, there was a perception that their creativity would have been squashed and destroyed by getting on medication. It was a constant conversation across numerous acts, from pop acts to... TV children acts, to you name it. You Where know, do you even think that perception... I've heard that perception. Yeah, Where do you I, think that comes I, I'll from? I'll tell you, I think it comes from the doors. It's a funny, quick, funny statement, but I read a lot about it, and um, Jim Morrison talked this idea that when you get on drugs and hallucinogenics, you write great music. Well, Morrison actually said, whether you like him or not, said, I wrote the worst shit on drugs. He actually... And Bob Dylan talks about this. Bob Dylan says that he, wrote, he writes really bad work on drugs. So the idea that you're writing amazing material, and it's also terrible for someone with mental health. So I think there's something in this idea that you've got to be, you know, on another level to reach that other level yeah. of creativity, which I actually think is bullshit. Yeah. I mean, my father's here. He's a wonderful painter and artist. He doesn't do drugs. Uh, but I think creativity is actually in the normative life. If you can create in normal life every day and write about things that are meaningful, that's really hard. That's actually a lot harder. So if you can do that, I think you're a long way down the track. Um, so I think that's got to be talked about more in the music industry, I think, collectively. I think there's a big misconception. I had a, I'd signed a young, art, a young band. I won't say who they were. It was a cataclysmic collapse. They were the hottest band, literally. Columbia had flown out from America to see them at the Annandale Hotel. Um, they were going to be signed and the band were on... We'd been managing them for about a month and a half and it was just bang, instant, super instant. And uh, Triple J added it, it was all happening, blah, blah, blah. They got on MDMA two nights before the show. 
total reaction to the brain of the lead singer, bang, he, he had a cataclysmic failure. He thought he was going to go to another high and write and perform and show these Columbia record guys what it was all about, being true rock and roll. And it was a, a cataclysmic failure and they didn't get signed. So I think that that's got to be talked about. And I think it's, it's got to be talked about in the broader creative industries that drugs, I'm not being saying no to drugs, I'm actually saying I don't think it necessarily helps. It can help long-term around pot and calming people down uh, after the age of 28, but certainly... I'm not sure, Nolsey, if you disagree with that or agree No, no. No, I, yeah, think, I, think, I agree massively. I think that but there's a massive stereotype. We all grew up listening to the stories of people. Of Jim yeah. Morrison taking 27 trips in 27 days. Totally. I think a lot of people think that they have to live up to that yep. rock star persona Booze. and be, be the out-drink everyone, out-part everyone, yep. and that's what makes you the ultimate rock star. You know what I mean? Hundreds, yeah. Oh, and then, <laughs> that's right, yeah. Exactly. Is it right, also knows you a little bit like when you guys go to Toowoomba or you go to these places, it's their Saturday night in a sense. That's where it, even yeah, if it's that, a Tuesday, also, it is yeah, their yeah. party night, it's their I night they're seeing yeah. Shannon Nolan, they yeah. want the yeah. full, yeah. they expect the full but experience. But I say that to my wife every time. It's funny, I've, especially after the show, I found out I had a lot more relatives than I really did have. I mean, cousin, let me in, sort of thing. But, but um, the people that you do run into, and, and after 20 or 15 years of touring like I have, I find that I've got mates that come to each show just about. And, that, and it is there Saturday night. Mm. It could be your... Oh, I've got a, a, a great um, stage tech who I love dearly and he goes, mate, never on the first night. You never have too many drinks in the first night. You remember you've got two nights to go. But because you're catching up with people and it's there one night out for the week, could be the one night out for the month, but you've got to do this, back up this night after night, three nights a weekend and then travel all the way back home and then do it all again next weekend. So it is part of the, the, the perception or the idea of being in a band and, and being a rock and roller or whatever that, that you have to be this or, or you're not the real deal, you know? And I mm. think that's what pushes a lot of people into that, you know? And, and plus trying, you know, burning the candle at both ends, you, people get to the point where they don't want to really get on stage. They'd rather go to bed early that night, but yeah. you've got a show that's been selling for three months, so, you know, you've got to do pressure. it. So you've got to yeah. do whatever the hell you can to get yourself into that situation. And a lot of times that, that you're, not in, you're not actually, in reality, in the place that you're trying to get to in your head, you know, which is probably what them young blokes did. You know? Absolutely, yeah. And the, on the personal side, yeah, pretty confronting situation for me. I, a year and a, about a year and two months ago, literally, I got a phone call, I was at work, I'd literally just walked into a boardroom, got a phone call from my best friend's father and he committed suicide. I'd known him for 33 years. We talked pretty much every second day, you know. Um, and I was set to go down the coast. We surfed a lot in a group of mates. And, yeah, he, he died in horrific circumstances. He committed suicide in absolutely horrific circumstances. And that was probably the lowest moment of my life, I think, in terms of... He did, interestingly, he didn't have a lot of friends. He was a very charming bloke. Ladies loved him, but he wasn't. He was there was a lot of trauma there historically, um, and that was incredibly difficult to deal with. You know, when it's that, you become the kind of uh, surrogate son for the family. That all kicks in, um, and then you've got to. I mean, us being managers, we have to manage everything, literally, from funerals to wakes to you know wills to you name it. So the, all of that journey was incredibly confronting and I'd never experienced such uh, I mean I dealt with narcissistic painful musicians uh, but that was a whole other level that was a level of 
sorrow and depth of depression that I've never experienced before in my life. You know, I'm very sorry to hear about your friend. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing it, Francis. Uh, did you have any signs with him along the way? Was this something you yeah. discussed? Yeah. Well, with it's him? interesting. Looking back, I've taken a lot of notes about it. I'm now seeing it in a in a in a, uh, a very close family member of our of ours. Um, almost, you know, very similar, but we can cut it off. I think we can cut. We're going to cut it off. We already are cutting it off, so it doesn't get any further. But uh, I think there's a tendency to not... They're so self-absorbed. I'm not, I'm not sure if narcissism is the right word. I think they're so full of fear and so full of confusion about their existence. They don't really know why they're important in life. They don't understand the reason for being. The French would say, what are the raison d'etre? What is my reason for being? You know, yeah. Yeah. Bill touched on this. You know, in front of 5,000 people, you sold out show. You don't know why you're here. Mm. And Ben used to... Oh, sorry. He, yeah, his name's Ben. Ben used to talk about this. He goes, oh, why, why, not, why am I here? Like, and he'd say, oh, here we go again. And we go on this long journey of discussion of self-hate. And he had everything. I mean, the bloke had it literally... In, you would, you'd meet him, he had everything. But there was this hate, this self-loathing, this depth of sadness. And I think there probably were elements of bipolar because he would ramp up. He wouldn't ramp super high. I've seen super ramped up people. That's another level. No, that's I've been bipolar too. The yeah. depression is oh. the same, if not worse. Yeah. Yet, and that's why a lot of people get misdiagnosed because that's right. Is, uh, my hypermania, I felt fucking amazing. Am I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I miss that feeling. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So uh, it's you can't. It's very hard to break through. So the first thing I've become very factual and practical is the first thing you got to get to a bloody GP quickly. You got to get on a ten. Uh, uh, 10 session program straight away you probably know about this and you've got to get onto medication because it is a chemical situation a friend of mine told me yesterday he, he survived suicide and he said if you hurt your foot do you keep walking on the foot or do you go to the doctors and you get it fixed yeah. we don't treat the brain like that we keep walking on the foot until it falls off I wish we change that we are we're working on that we're changing that yeah. but that's that's what we're going to do. So practical moments. Have people around you who are practical. Don't have people who want to talk all the time. Have people who are going to go, get to a GP, get on your program, check your medications, get a good psychiatrist or psychologist or both. There's plenty of programs out there, but the people who fall through the gap and who end up having suicide, going through suicide and obviously passing away, they are of another level that it doesn't really matter what intervention happens. It's almost impossible to break through sometimes. But on the high, there's always a high. I think the high for me was, God, how long has it been? I'm going to get in trouble now. When I heard the heartbeat of my brand new baby in the belly of my lovely partner. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Which is due on Valentine's Day. That's so cool. <laughs> 29 weeks. So yeah, that's good. That. <laughs> Congratulations. That's, so that's a high. That's a high. Um, yeah, I, I've lost a friend to suicide. I've been an Are You OK Day ambassador for three years. Uh, I lost a friend about ten years ago, Richard Marsland. Um, he was a very talented radio media performer, hosts a lot of shows. He used to write as well for shows like Rove Live. Very successful. Um, and I, to be honest, I, I would put my hand up and say that I was pretty ignorant about mental health yeah. issues before this happened. And I think there's a pattern with that. A lot of people yeah. find that until it impacts someone in their life, they don't really give it the yeah, understanding yeah. it requires. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I, uh, I had 
multi-millionaire mates, builders who were saying, oh, I'm depressed. I'm going like, mate, I'll t- come with me to the Royal Children's Hospital and I'll show you real sadness, yeah. you know what I mean? So I never sort of really understood it in because gen- I'm thinking, what have they got to be negative about, you know? And, and we owned a little property down in Melbourne and, and it had a bay window. And I remember it was part of the reason I bought the property, just sitting at this little bay window looking out. It was just beautiful, you know? And uh, it was 2012 and I'd just had a back operation and, and was sort of laid up for six weeks and was pretty... Under, under a fair bit of pressure, you know. And I remember sitting at that bay window and looking at the same view and it just all felt wrong. And I went, well, how can that feel wrong? Because that's what part of the reason it sold us the property, you know. You start so, to get a bit down on yourself, yeah, don't you? Yeah, I just went, well, there's something wrong here and it's nothing, it's not, nothing to do with the bay window. It's, it's got to do with me. So at the time, I, it was a pretty tough time in the music industry. Well, when isn't it? But uh, I, I just booked a heap of shows and didn't make any money out of them. But I, I actually had a, f- a feeling of self-worth after being away for three nights on the weekend and coming home and, and doing the shows, you know, I felt like I got to choose something. So I think that self-diagnosis that early, you know, was, was what probably saved me with it. But it is hard to get your mind around it until you've actually felt it, you know. And, and when you do, yeah. you, you realise and your mind opens up and you can understand why people think the way they do or say what they do. Definitely, yeah. And I think um, when you lose a loved one, I think uh, instinctively we... What could I have done differently? You even blame yourself yeah. to a point. I think that's a natural feeling. One thing that I've taken from the experience um, is to, um, if you, you know, how are you going? You ask someone how you're going. This, this guy was a prime example of, yeah, good mate. And I think yeah. there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people aren't quite ready to have that conversation. So when I talk at, at mental health events, I'll always say, dig to the second response or even the third response. Like, actually, eye contact people. It'll feel a bit weird at first, but to just if, you, if you're checking in on a friend, really check in on a friend because it's yeah, very yeah, easy yeah. to go, yeah, I'm good, mate. Yeah, I'm good. Everyone's going to say yeah. that because they're not yeah. ready to have that conversation, but yeah. they need to feel in a comfortable space. I wanted to chat with you, Tim. Yeah. We're talking about... Do you want to finish that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah, just want to add something to that because when people are in that complete depressive state, the worst thing you can say to them is, you'll be right, yeah. or just shake it off. Yeah. Like, just don't ever, you know, try your hardest not to say that. Just listen. Just listen to them. Ask the questions and just listen. But don't try and doctor them. Don't try and tell them what they need to do because they're not in that position to hear that. They just need to know someone cares and just listen. Absolutely. The language is so important. Tim, um, yeah. lowest points where you've, you've struggled with your mental health. What have you experienced? Yeah, I think um, for me early on, my uh, manager who I started with, who really helped me build me uh, passed away quite early on and that was quite shocking and um, and more so looking back in the ways of a few um, of his other clients, we were getting to a time of intervention of, okay, this is serious, things are going on, we don't know what's going on, we need to um, do something serious and then he... What types of signs are we talking about, Tim? What types of what signs? What types of signs that you thought Just, there requires an intervention? Um, he, yeah, just erratic, erratic behaviour. He would, he would say he was at one meeting and he wouldn't be there or he, he'd just be, he just wouldn't be making sense out of character the board. Behavior. Yeah, a, a very out of character. And, and sadly, I found out a lot more out of character than, um, than I knew to be after he passed away. I found out a lot more. So uh, there's, there's a lot of that that, you know, kind of... I'm a very kind of uh, self assured type of person so I'll just kind of keep plodding on not knowing the effects of how it really happened to me I didn't and I and I didn't really address it at the time and I think it took two years for me to kind of finally get to a place where all of that uh that area of my life really affected me and I got to a place where through 
um, going through some bad management situations, um, I was I felt really alone. And I and the funny thing with with all these conversations in mental health is um, that everyone's been echoing, which is crazy, is is the fact of purpose and losing your purpose or your why. And how that, when that's distorted, your self-value is gone. And then that's when these really evil thoughts of, you know, why am I here come in. And and I think the saddest thing is that uh, in the music industry that people wrap their why around their music persona. Because it's just so, it's it's really not up to you. You know what I mean? It's such a whimsical, um, flowy type of thing that to wrap your why around something that could just change like that is, is very scary. So I, I had to, to learn to find my purpose. Firstly, in realizing that me as a human being, I am enough, period, without anything, without accolades, without anyone saying anything. I am enough and I'm worthy of life and, and um, experiencing life. Um, and then just letting uh, myself kind of grow and, and, and being vulnerable through those moments. But it was, you know, I, 2016, I was, I was broke. <laughs> I was brokeity broke. Like, How did you turn that around in 2016, Tim? Um, it was a slow process, man. I, I, I think um, I just took, respons- I took responsibility. I, uh, would, I was hard on myself, and I realized that I would kind of was using the people around me to kind of as the answer of these guys are the people that are going to get me through. And I think uh, once I realized that it's, it's all on me, even if it's people bringing in, it's all, it's my decision, it's, it's my career, it's my life, um, I started to see a change in how I, I operated. And I, I got smart and, and I, you know, I, I couldn't live the flashy life that I thought I needed to live. And, and I think something we haven't really touched on is the 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 flavor of social media and all of this, which has yes. amped this to a whole Absolutely. other level that was still, we don't know the full effects of how bad it's it's getting. And, you know, God bless uh, your kids and everyone's kids coming up in this new day and age because it's scary on how that affects people. But, um, yeah, man, I, I um, yeah, I just <laughs> had to just start making some smarter decisions. Man, thank you for sharing. Give it up for yeah. Tim. Thank you. Um, we're going to take a break soon, guys. I think we'll do a couple more minutes. Uh, we'll do a couple more minutes, and then we'll have a little fifteen-minute break. And when we come back, we'd love some questions, as, uh, questions from the audience. So please have a think about it. it. Can be for a specific member of the panel. It can be a general question, but um, we'd love to hear questions. Um, just before we go to the break, uh, a lot of people in the room in the music industry are looking for, you know helpers, pointers, tips, things that might help them with their various experiences. Can we just go along the line and say something that you would like to pass on? Let's, let's use the example of uh, a young artist kind of coming through, breaking into the industry. How do we help them with their mental health situations? If we start with you on the end, Nick. Yeah, a, a tool I wish I had at the very beginning was meditation because we, it's great to take care of our physical body and go to the gym and stay strong and, and fit, but the gymnasium for our mind is meditation. Um, whatever that looks like to you. So it's one of the most powerful things that's ever touched my life and it's, it's changed everything for me. And, yeah. That's a great example. I've used uh, an app called Headspace, which is um, just on your phone, 10 minutes. I do it a couple of times a week. Um, a great little reset and just takes you out of, you know, if you're, if you're feeling a bit anxious, you've got all these things going on in your mind and thinking about work. It's a little reset, which I find very useful. Francis? 
Oh, probably three words. Um, learn to surf. <laughs> uh, uh, that, saved, that saved me on the, many annoying phone call for an artist. Uh, no, but I think there's just, just artists in general, I think everybody, is to have a passion outside your passion. Right? I think there's something that we lack, you know, I've been fortunate enough to grow up in a, a household of artistic, interesting people, but to have a passion that runs beside that, um, I always used to tell musicians on tour, when you're not performing, what are you doing? They're generally sleeping. Yeah. And I'm like, get out. We used to, I used to try and get them to theatre productions, go and see the local theatre production, yeah. you know, mix in cultural circles or get outside yourself. The other thing is be of service to somebody else. That's a great one. And that's, we, we set up a uh, Thirsty Moot, we set up a, we did a lot of work with Starlight, we gave money and supported that. And I set that up, I was like, guys, we've got to be involved with that, we've got to do something, you know. So I think running parallel passion and thinking about other people. It's hard when they're, you know, musicians are direct, any type of artist is direct and, you know, driven and passionate to have a career and they're, you know, calling you 73 times a day. Um, can we have a meeting about a meeting? Uh, but run parallel, have a passion and try to help somebody else while you're doing it. Great stuff. Well yeah. done, Francis. Uh, Bill? Got one thing to say, don't read the YouTube comments. <laughs> now I really want to read them. <laughs> Mel. Uh, look, aside from drink wine, um, just a bit of advice. Don't enter this industry if you want to be famous because it's not about that. And if you don't have the resilience, if you don't have the creativity, if you don't have the right support network, it's not going to work for you. So don't go in thinking, I'm doing this because I want to be famous because that's not what this is all about. Very good. Thank you, Mel. Uh, Tim? Don't do it for the followers. <laughs> for the gram. They will betray you. Um, I, I think for me, just understanding that it, it's, if it's what you really want to do, this is the long game, man. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Um, it's, it's, a career is long, and um, I'm still learning that as I go. I, I wanted everything kind of straight away. Um, and the, the time I thought I could get it, I probably tripled. It, it was triple in time <laughs> that I thought. I, I had this dream of doing this since I was 15 years old. I thought, yeah, I'm going to do it. This was three years. Watch me. Watch. <laughs> I kind of got to the, it by 24, you know what I mean? And then it's, it's just a long game. So understand that, understand that it's a process and understand that these highs and lows make what is a beautiful and, like, fulfilling life. Great advice. Nelsie? Mate, I, I, I just think uh, you've got to be comfortable and love the person that you look in the mirror at on Monday morning and not the one that you look in the mirror at just before you're going on stage. I know so many people that, um, you know, they won't leave the house until they're, they're rock, looking like they're just about to jump on stage somewhere, you know what I mean? So... I think because a lot of times people, that person gets attention and the person that they really are or the person that they've always been isn't the exciting one, isn't the one that's being celebrated, you know what I mean? And, and when they lose, <clears throat> they distance themselves from the person that they always, the, who they are as a person, you know? So you've got to be comfortable with yourself, um, with who you are and what you're about and not try and create a character that, that uh, you think people need because what people need one minute, well, they'll need something else the next minute. So you're stuck with the fallout. So I think at the end of the day, you've got to be happy with the one that, uh, the one that you, you are and the one that you've always been. 
Really useful. Um, thank you so much for sharing that, guys. So what we're going to do now is have a 10 or 15-minute break. Uh, when we come back, we'd love some questions from the audience, but can we please get a round of applause for all of our guests? Absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Thank you very much for taking your seats. We are about to commence the Q&A section of tonight. So, first of all, does anyone, uh, show of hands, if you'd like to start with the first question, uh, open, open slather, go for it. Uh, yes, can we get a microphone, Alana, over here with this gentleman? If not, I'll do it myself. Uh, uh, thank you, Anna. Um, this gentleman in the pink shirt. Thank you very much. I'll just tell you what I had for lunch. Uh, chicken tikka masala to kill the time. It was delicious. Over to you, sir. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Um, I guess uh, my question, we um, were hearing a bit before about people, you know, just uh, whether you choose or choose not to adhere to living the rock and roll lifestyle. I'm just in the changes that, uh, um, responses that everyone has shared with us tonight, which has been really fantastic. I guess my question is, is there stuff that the industry as a, sh as a whole should be doing to help manage and respond to uh, the way we treat mental health um, across the industry, both um, for artists and for music workers and, and for, I'd, I'd add in for uh, production crew as well. Great question. What's your name? Sorry, sir. Uh, my name's Clive Miller, and I'm actually from Support Act. Clive, thank you very much. Um, who would like to have a go at that one from Clive? Francis? I think one real thing that we can do is limiting the availability of alcohol. That for artists, you know, first thing you think about... Mel, you've yeah. been voted off the island. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nelson. <laughs> But just this whole concept that artists are often paid in beer. Yeah. You do a gig... Yeah, well, maybe that. Yeah. Or you do a gig and you're getting paid $50, but you still get a rider of a couple of slabs of beer. <laughs> that somehow it's expected that you're going to drink half a dozen, a dozen drinks every night, and it just becomes the norm. Um, I think that's a real issue. And then on the crew side, I think just the... <laughs> main thing is the sheer hours that they're expected to work and you've got crew who are expected to load in at PA at 8 o'clock in the morning and they're not leaving there till 2 o'clock at night. That's just insane. Nobody should work those kind of hours. Mm. Yeah, Nick? I have my own solution to this. <laughs> so on my last tour, I booked all venues in Australia that didn't serve alcohol. So all of my, um, all of my shows were alcohol-free, just like my wedding. And... Were That's really fascinating. Can, I, can we just explore that a little bit more? Alcohol-free. And did you notice much of a difference between alcohol events and alcohol-free events? Oh, my God. It was, it was incredible. So the beginning of my show is quite different because um, when I walked out on the stage, I would just literally barefooted sit down in the middle of the stage and just close my eyes. And the entire audience would follow. Um, and I found it incredible to bring the audience into a coherent state as a group of people and then they sort of feel like they're going through this journey together as opposed to having their own experience um, and what I've noticed from that was a much more deeply impacted personal experience from that because they were fully present um, and they weren't distracted 
That's very cool. Does anyone else want to respond to Clive's question before we move to the next, Francis? I, saw, I think Bill touched on it. I think drug, w drugs were huge. I, I did a little bit of work for a short period of time in the dance scene um, with some major DJs coming out from America and things, and the drugs were another level, like a whole other level, and, and I think that's... Uh, you probably all saw the Avicii documentary and what... I'm not sure if you have, but the stuff that that bloke went through, and this, that world is pretty confronting. Like, the, the, the volume of drugs that are taken is just staggering. And I just don't know how. I never did it. I just went for a surf in the morning. But um, I don't know how the functioning, the whole operation, the function stays together when they're doing that volume of drugs, you know. I've had the, one, the brief privilege of spending a night with Ozzy Osbourne and he said to me, he goes, I won't do his accent, Nolsey can do that. <laughs> but he said he took drugs for, I can't remember how long, I think it was 15 years or whatever. He said, I did it pretty much every day except Sunday because I think he was mildly religious for a short period of time. But <clears throat> I think that whole, that whole uh, sales proposition of the music industry has now, is changing. I think there's, you know, you see emerging artists like the likes of Troy Sivan and that, and even to a certain extent, rappers like Chance, the rapper, people have gone out on their own, they're not Druggos, they're not going hard in that space. They're kind of counterculture players, and they've got whole swathes of followers who are not drinking and they're not doing drugs. Yeah. And you're creating these micro clusters of the music industry. So the music industry, I think, has changed dramatically from being the music industry to micro clusters of industries. Sorry, one more thing. Yeah. What about the simple act of not putting gigs on so freaking late? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, mine started at six thirty. I was like, screw it, I'm going to be on stage at 7 o'clock. Doors open at 6.30. Wrap the show up at 8.30. I do two hours of meet and greet. I'm home by 11 o'clock. Totally. I work on sunrise. I wanted this to be a midday today. <laughs> um, but that's okay. We'll discuss that for next year. Um, do we have great, great responses, guys? Do we have a next uh, question, please? Oh, there's lots of questions. It's great. Let's go to the gentleman at the front in the white T-shirt. Thank you, Anna. What's your name, mate? I'm James. I'm a facilitator at the Banksia Project. Um, thank you. Awesome. Round of applause for James. <laughs> Banksia Project. Represent. Thank you. Uh, my question's around a big show or a big event um, when you're on a real big high and you're going home and you're, I guess, coming down from that. How do you get to sleep? How do you sort of switch off from, from that real big high? Nosey. Yeah, that, that's, I, uh, that's a real hard one for me because it's obviously uh, I, but I, I, at one stage I worked at a pub too and I'd do the night shift and we'd close up at 12 and I had the same problem then. You're dealing with people and you're trying to obviously not you know, you entertain them and, and be um, vibrant I suppose um, to, 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 to just go home and shut that off is a really tough thing especially uh, when you've had a really good show and you're really on a high is a hard thing you know because there's so much uh, of that because everything sort of happens so quickly and you end up in that same situation night after night where, you, where you've had a really good show and nothing went wrong and, and you sang really well and you really... For me, because I take my performance so personally too, nobody can judge me as harshly as I judge myself on how I've performed as, as a singer. Um, when you're in that, that, vibe, that vibe that after the show that you really pumped it all went well, it's really hard to, to wind down, you know. Um, and, you know, I'll drink a can of Red Bull before the show, you know what I mean? Any other night of the week, if I have a can of Red Bull after five o'clock in the afternoon, I'm still there. Like a... <laughs> and it's sort of the same thing, you know. So it is a real hard thing, 
I, I just sort of find, try my best, but there's lots of nights where I don't sleep well. I'm not a good sleeper as it, as it is, you know. I've got an excuse at the moment. I've got a 10-month-old at home, and he's just saying, you're not sleeping at all. <laughs> so it is a hard one, you know, to, to switch off, you know. Um, I just try and have a hot shower after, after a gig, you know what I mean? But, um, and then sort of that signifies, you know, that it's over. The night's over, so you've got to, you know, go to bed and try and... Try and get some sleep, but you're in a different hotel room every night. You've got different pillows every night, which is a hard thing. I've, I've searched for 15 years to try and get the right pillows at home, but I'm never at home. <laughs> it's the hardest part. So if anyone's got any help with that in that uh, situation, I'd love it, you know. Um, it'd be great. But I think uh, meditation would be something that I'd be really interested in looking into. Yeah, you can also throw in, this is my little trick. <laughs> um, I eat a giant sweet potato, a baked sweet potato, <laughs> because literally... It literally grounds you and it brings yeah, your energy yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. And if you combine that with CBD oil, I'm telling you, it's all good. <laughs> it's, that's the way to go. Wow. Th- I'm learning so much. Nolsey needs to, like a deal to sponsor pillows, sweet potato. This is incredible insight, guys. I did not expect any of that. Um, what about you, Tim? Um, how do you come down after those highs? Um, PS4 or Netflix or sexy time with a significant other <laughs> and there's no preference of order there that's yeah i i oh <laughs> what a disrespectful tried and failed uh, <laughs> when you're on the road sometimes you gotta uh, yeah we're all adults here uh, are we i think we are um yeah i, I keep it really basic man and anything that kind of is away from um, music that just kind of calms me. I do it. I love, I'm big on Netflix and PS4, though. It's a big, it's a big thing. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you, James, for the question. Uh, moving on to our next question, let's go with the guy through there who has a shirt nearly as loud as mine. Yes. Uh, can we get a microphone to that gentleman, that style icon? What is your name, mate? Hi, guys. I'm Brendan. Brendan. Um, I have a question, I guess, just about dealing with being in the public eye, dealing with competition, dealing with constantly being critiqued and criticised, how do you go about it day to day? Who would like to start with that one? Mel? We've got a mic there. Have we got another mic? Have we lost the mic? Oh, it's out in the crowd. We've got two mics for seven people. <laughs> this is a fancy hotel. Come on, guys, let's get another mic. Um, go, Mel. Uh, look, the one bit of advice I'll give you is because take tonight, for example, there might be five of you that think I was great, five of you that think I was shit, another five that go, I'm again, I never want to see her again. The trick is you have to give zero fucks. You really do. Like, you, you have to give zero fucks about what people think because it'll eat you up. You won't understand because there'll be so much positive, so much negative, and you just need to stay true to who you are and you'll always win. Just be you, always. Nice. Love that. Great answer. Um, Tim? deserves dropping the mic. I won't do that. Um, yeah, I, I think going off what Mel said, man, you you gotta just you gotta just do you, man. And you have to what Nolsey said before, you have to wake up next to you, you have to wake up to you. You have to um wear it at the end of the day. And you know, I, I've been in positions where, you know, I've done great things that I didn't really do for myself. I did it for other people and even though it went well, I didn't feel good. So I'm like, what what's that about? You know what I mean? So you definitely gotta do you. No fucks for life. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Noles, you want to answer that one? No? no? Okay, we'll keep moving. <laughs> um, let's go the lady over there um, close to the curtain. Yes, that's you. Thank you very much. What's your name? Hello, my name's Joe. Thanks, Joe. I was just wondering, in the lead up to one of your events, um, two days, three days before your events, um, the feelings that you get inside, how do you compartmentalise how you're going to react with what you're about to approach and how you're going to deal with your family and how you're going to deal with your lives and how do you get on stage knowing that you are going to be the best that you can be? Someone got that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't particularly... You don't always know if you're going to be the best you can be. It's probably the hardest part. Um, what I, I, I just... Sing at home. I mean, I didn't even know what warming up was much beforehand when I used to play in pubs. I just all of a sudden down the track, once I found out about it, I realised that's why I started singing better after the third song. I just thought I sort of had, a, had a couple of Because yeah. I've never had a singing lesson. Uh, we didn't have any singing teachers in a school of 60 people, you know, where I grew up. So um, there's, there's so many learning curves to that. But now I've learned to use my voice so much better, look after it so much better. I, the, the few days leading up, I'll, I'll just do five or six songs at home and, and give myself a bit of exercise. So I used to, back in the day when it first started, like I said before, I was, I was doing like shows every night except for probably one night a week, Mondays or something, you know. So by the end of the week, I'd start singing really good. My voice would be fit because it's, it's like any other muscle in your body. The more you work it, the more fit it, that it gets, you know. It's like training, I suppose. Um, same thing as playing footy, but... Now at home, I'll, I'll so a couple of days leading up, I'll, I'll you know sit at home and play and sing and, and sing hard because I, I sing fairly hard. Um, so when I come to the show, I'm giving my voice the best chance it can to be the best it can be for the night that actually matters. Uh, I think so. That that preparation, um, you know, gone. The, I, I, when I was young, I suppose you didn't respect it enough and. And you wouldn't, uh, and you wouldn't, you know, look after it as well. But now I, I don't go to nightclubs or anything anymore because you talk over the music, and, and, and talking is the worst thing you can do for your voice. Um, in honesty, if you if you're at a nightclub and you're singing to everybody, it's probably not so bad. But but I now really take a point of, of uh, not giving myself a reason to be upset with myself after the show, if you know what I mean. So if I do everything leading up to it, then for win, win lose, or draw. Um, I'm happy with, with my, my setup, if you know what I mean. That's amazing, Shannon. Can I ask you, as a parent, um, do you want to instill in your kids um, your talent and have that, um, what do they call, uh, uh, they say that you should teach your children a talent to be musical or things like that, because I'm an educator. Yep. Do you feel that that's very important in a in a child's education? Oh, m most definitely. You know, I, I think it's very hard though. I would give you know um, my right foot to be able to play piano, but back in the day when Mum was taking us to piano lessons, it was like you know she could have cut off both feet if we just got out of it. You know what I mean? So hindsight's a great thing with that. I think you know um, my kids. I we'd have the only time really together we all have a bath together when when they were little when i when i'd get home and it would be my time with just with them and without their mum in the room sort of thing and and i i tested them all back then if they had a, an ear so i just said repeat up just do what i did did a scale and they could, they've all they all can carry a note can we please hear a little bit of that scale please <laughs> come on who wants to hear that just a little bit me, 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 yeah me. yeah <laughs> 
I'd say they have to say, what about me? No. Uh, <laughs> That's the first thing. <laughs> yeah, Australian, you've got to have, here, you gotta have the killer nose, kids. <laughs> I, the rest can go missing. But the biggest thing, I've never pushed my kids into anything to do with music. Um, funnily enough, none of them will sing in front of me. I know they all can, but they're all sort of for some reason embarrassed. And I don't know why, but I... I don't encourage them in any way. If they want to do it, I'll, I'll definitely guide them or try and help them out. But I want it to be their decision. I want them to, to do whatever the, whatever the hell makes them happy and I'll encourage them in any way I, that I can. But, you know, what I'm doing, my journey is to put food on the table for them and, and I'm doing what I do to do that. But um, I'm not definitely going to push my thoughts and opportunities on onto them you know if they want to do it i'll help them but it's it's their life and their decision i think very cool let's get a couple more questions guys um let's go this gentleman here in the in the dark shirt thank you very much anna we'll do a couple more questions guys and then we will uh invite you to have a drink upstairs but thank you so much for hanging around for the q a as well over to you what's your name mate hi <coughs> hi i'm rob um i actually also help with one of the uh growth rooms so i highly recommend them great um my question is probably for is it the two managers. Sorry, mate. Um, I think one of... I'm a music lover, so I think one of the toughest... Uh, one of the things about loving music is you want, you want to be moved and you're moved when people go through angst, love, highs and lows. So how do you manage that? Because you're going to attract people that have gone through that. You don't, there's very few songs about being content and things are... Doing well, yeah, you, yeah, want, I agree, yeah. you know. The so, y- how are you going to? Uh, how do you manage that with someone that's young and performing and basically, you know, splurting their emotions out? <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got to take Kelly, <laughs> so he can go first. He said, "Young." Um, that is a really tough question. Mm. I think all you can do is be there, be available, be supportive, and not much else. Yeah, I think you can... I had a slightly different relationship with my artists because I came from a, a musical background and I, w- I didn't want to be on stage. I had a fantastic mentor and Harry Vander, a Vander and Young, if anyone knows who he is, and he taught me a lot about music. So we would, I, would, I connected with musicians on discussions of pre-choruses and counter melodies and blah 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 so we actually connected on that level they would often tell me we'd have uh, you just support them around the creativity you'd never burden them with your opinion around their creativity i remember there's a famous story of a ceo losing his job because he told a certain famous musician what he shouldn't what single he should have released and the manager said that's up to the artist so I, i think you've just got to guide and support that emotional journey, if you have a intellectual relationship with them in, in terms of creativity, then you can have that discussion and you can talk about that world. But if you can't, you know, you're, you're guiding. You're also saying what you shouldn't do. Like you actually advise around, we were talking about this before, around commercial endeavours. You know, they'll, you'll tell them what not to do in that world. But in terms of their creativity, I think you let them breathe and do their thing. And they will ask you if they respect you. If they respect you in that space, they'll ask you and you can give that feedback. Paul McGuinness, I, I got 15 minutes with Paul McGuinness, amazing, amazing man. He managed a small band called U2 and he said, he said his, job, his job was to, to choose the singles. 
because Bono and Edge, they love each other, but they would disagree all the time. So Paul actually chose the singles. So that dynamic was really interesting, you know. So, um, yeah, it depends. Yeah, just to add quickly, it's really yeah, important to respect the artists where, where they are in the headspace. So it's like if you know that they're, you know, on a writing binge, it's not the time to go, let's go through these contracts or see what, <laughs> see what the balance sheet looks like this month. And I remember saying once with the band I tour managed, most the, the manager walking in 15 minutes before they went on stage and asking him to sign the tax returns. And that just felt so <laughs> wrong to me as the artist is about to, you know, they're playing the entertainment centre. It was just like, you, you don't do that. <laughs> Great answer. Um, I think that's it, guys. I think uh, maybe one more quick question, if someone had one. Yes, the gentleman over there. We'll just do one more quick one. Uh, yes, last question. Thank you very much. And then we've got to wind this up. Yes, the lady over there. No, I, I might break into song, but um, I just want... Shannon, first of all, I voted for you on Australian Oh, Night, thank you. So. Yes. yes. If you'd only voted just a little bit more, we might I'm the reason you're here. No, I'm joking. Um, I just want to thank say... You. Thank take you. Take a bow, because you are the most courageous, bravest people. The more you talk about it, the more we're going to destigmatise what is going on. And I am so proud of being involved with Banks here on the peripheral, but I want to applaud all of you for doing something so important and imperative and I run a business organisation across Australia, New Zealand and Singapore and we are working with Banksy now to take this model into the corporate sector so business leaders can do what you're doing, what the community, what the garden rooms are doing all across regions. I've got two Kiwis here who want to take this, this to New Zealand because what's going on in New Zealand is even more frightening that's what, than, than, than what's going on in our country and the more we talk about it the more we're going to change and save lives. So I just want to say thank you. I don't have a question, but keep going and take a huge bow because that's the biggest, biggest gift you can give all of us. Thank you very much. What a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful note to end the Q&A on. Thank you very much for that. That's very generous. Um, okay, you guys are free to go. You're free to go to the back of the room. Let's please give it up for all of our amazing guests tonight. Nick, Francis, Bill, Mel, Tim Amatic, Shannon Knoll. Um, honestly... I was saying just before, I met a guy named John, uh, and we were talking about tonight, the first half of it, and I said to him, to talk about these issues is hard enough with friends, with family, to do it in front of strangers, to do it in front of cameras, to do it in front of bright lights like this is incredible. I think you'll agree with me when I say they were all so giving of their personal stories, their connection, and some incredible insight. There's some really great tips in there for people in this industry. So give it up once again for our amazing guests. Thank you. Well done. And a final round of applause for the MC for tonight that took time out. Yes, Sam Mack. Thank you very much, Mel. Just, just quickly, for those of you that haven't heard the story, so basically Sam got drunk, left his phone in a taxi, oh, yes. and Blake, um, is he, I don't know. Brian. Brian. B, it starts with B, it's okay. He found your phone, yeah. put it on charge, didn't try and sell it at the black market <laughs> and returned it to you and yeah. you said, you know what, I'm going to help you at your next event and MC it and here we are, people. Sam yeah, Mack volunteered that's tonight. That's how it happened. It's a true out. story. Is that not good karma? That it was is great karma. two weeks karma. ago. That's a perfect time. To, can we get a round of applause and bring up the founder of the Banksia Project, Brian Coleman. There he is. <laughs> Thank you, Mel. Um, that's a true story. He is uh, a very generous man, a very kind man. Obviously, he's a very um, creative man who's pulled something incredible together, and that's why we're all here tonight. But uh, that's right. We met two weeks ago. I 
was feeling very fragile. I had lost my phone. I lost my identity. There's a lot of photos on that phone that no one should see. Uh, it was in very safe keeping. I went to his place. I picked it up. I said, can I give you $100 to, I didn't know, for a bar of soap. Can I buy you like a dinner or something? I wasn't hitting on you. Uh, I'm straight. Um, uh, I offered him money. He wouldn't take the money. And then um, I said, well, can I, you know, donate it? And he said, well, I happen to run a charity. I said, what is the charity? He said, the Banksy Project, um, Mental Health. I said, that's an Are You OK uh, thing. I'm an ambassador. Can we donate it to that? Uh, he said yes, so we donated the money. And then uh, as I was leaving, I said, if I can ever do something, you know, to help your initiative, your project, I'd love to help out. You know, I can host an event, anything I could do. I can mention it on TV, whatever I can do to support it, I'd love to do it. And um, little did I know that two weeks later, he'd be booking me in. So he moves fast is what I've learned about him. But ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the founder, Brian Coleman. Thanks, Sam. I just want to first uh, thank all of our amazing speakers and all of you guests who are here today in attendance. Um, my name is Brian Coleman and I'm the founder of the Banksy Project. We are a charity which works in early intervention in mental health amongst the male community. I started the Banksy Project after surviving my own suicide attempt in 2009. I realised I needed to learn more about mental health and together with industry professionals, clinical professionals, we designed two pro programs to encourage further education and support services. Sorry. These include our, our growth rooms, the Gym for the Mind, where groups of men get together on a monthly basis to learn useful tips. This closer, like that? Okay. Um, learn useful life tips and talk openly in a confidential and supportive environment. Each group is facilitated by a trained volunteer, who some are present tonight, and we have on-call professionals available for anyone in need. Our second focus is our garden rooms. These events are so important because we begin conversations on industry topics. These are led by leaders of industry and lived experience people. Today we focused on mental health in the music industry, an important discussion. We started, with our, we started this with our event partner, Support Act, and I want to uh, support Act to provide a 24-hour free and confidential telephone counselling service for the Australian music industry. I'll, I just want to say thank you to Clive Miller from Support Act, and we look forward to supporting the music industry together with our tailored growth rooms in primary locations. More news to come. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to our partners, Aria, Ovalo, Hotels and Medibank. We'll all be available this evening to answer any questions that you may have. And now to close this event, we are very excited to showcase Nick Broadhurst's new single, Inner Love, which is a raw journey during a coming out of his depression, written by Nick Broadhurst and Will Cumming. It is an inspiring single for anyone who has come face to face with mental illness, from dark to light. Thank you all so much, and we hope you have a joyous festive season. Thank you. That's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, and we want to say a big thank you to the Banksy Project who allowed us to come into that panel uh, and record for this podcast. If you or anyone you know involved in the industry is suffering with mental health issues, you can contact Support Act's Wellbeing Hotline on one 800 959 500 or Beyond Blue on 13 11 14. Thank you again for listening and we'll catch you all next week.